So you're, you're out in town, in downtown one evening, or visiting somewhere. You're out in town one evening with your friends or with your family, and you're hoping to eat something. You spot a restaurant, looks good, and you can see there's plenty of empty tables. So you walk hungrily and happily towards the door, and then there it is, right? Right in the middle of the way, that sign saying, please wait to be seated. Have you seen those? Please wait to be seated. I think the worst is when they say, welcome. And it's like false hope, right? Welcome, please wait to be seated. And then there you are, and you're at the mercy of the establishment. And several scenarios can play out here, right? There's a happy one. The waiter comes, welcomes you, and right away says, follow me, and then takes you to that nice table by the window, right? and you sit down, and you have your meal. Happy day. But then there's the other scenario. The waiter shows up, and rather than looking at you, looks down at their little tablet, right? And they go, do you have a reservation? No, no, we don't. Mmm. You can almost hear his eyes rolling, right? Mmm. How many are you in your group? Six. Mmm. Six, and you do not have a reservation. No, no, we don't, unfortunately not. Mmm. And then he looks at you, right? Mmm. Okay, unfortunately, we are quite full today the waiter says to you, right? And you stare at all those empty tables and your stomach goes, right? But what can you do? And then the waiter goes, wait here, please, while I see what I can do. And by that, he means he's gonna take a bathroom break and then come back and say, unfortunately, we cannot. There's too many bookings today. You're gonna have to find another place, right? We are fully booked. It's still better, though than another scenario, right? The other scenario is when you don't realize how fancy the place actually is. And you walk in, or presumes to be, you know, and you walk in and the waiter comes and doesn't even bother checking his book of reservation, just scans you and goes, we don't take tables without reservations. And then you go, yeah, but you didn't ask me if I don't have a reservation. No, I didn't, did I? Just take a look at you and no, you don't belong here. And then you gotta go. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating a bit for, for drama, right? But you, you get the point, have you, you know the feeling. You stopped at the door. You stopped at the door. Now, of course, we can't defend the waiter. They have a job to do, right? And part of their job is following certain criteria for seating guests, including not accepting more guests than they can serve and not allowing the sweaty tourist in his swimsuit to go into the seafood restaurant just because it's beach stuff, you can't, right? So the waiter has a job to do. So we can't defend a waiter. It's also hardly helpful, I find, to shout at the waiter. Uh, They've been told what to do and they're following the guidelines. They're following what they've been taught. But what if the waiter just starts coming up with stuff, you know, like, not letting in people with blue sweaters. Doesn't want it. Or demanding that people go back and change into their best 
clothes if they want to have any hope of entering that particular restaurant. Or starts taking bribes. You know, oh, maybe I can get you a place. You know, if you help me, you help me to help you. In that case, my advice is call Paul. Call Paul. And Paul might just come kicking down that damn please wait to be seated sign and telling the waiter to get back into the kitchen because he shouldn't even be there sorting people at the door to begin with. And then after that, Paul might very well turn to you and ask, you want to come in? And say, well, yeah. Then he goes, okay, great, grab an, grab an apron. The kitchen is this way, come on. And you go in all confused and, okay, I don't know what's going on, but food's that way, you go. We're in a new series here in OIC talking about Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, to the churches in the province of Galatia. And we have called it belonging. We've called it belonging. And we've called it that because belonging is at the center of this letter that Paul writes to the Galatians. And that's also where it might hit home for us, belonging, an issue of belonging. And if you're here in our services long enough, or if you're listening on a podcast, you might notice that it can sound like over the weeks that we're repeating ourselves a bit and, and touching on the same issues. And that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Because that's also very much how this letter is shaped. Paul is hitting at a particular issue from sort of different angles. And though every angle hits more or less at the same spot, the directions that it's coming from also tells us something new. And last week we talked about how Paul is already addressing the issue, and I'll talk about what the issue is in a minute, but he's already addressing the issue with his greeting. But in today's text, Paul sort of left the greeting behind and he's straight on kicking down the sign. So I want to read with you from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, from verse 6 to 10. Uh, and I'm reading from the NRSV. It's the ESV up there, so there's a bit of a clash in uh, translation there. But you'll be able to, to, find, to follow quite fine. And it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let that one be accursed. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Gloves off, right? Gloves off, this is bare knuckle Paul. Paul is angry, he is not happy, he is not mincing his words. And why is Paul not happy? He's not happy because a message is being proclaimed and is being espoused and is being put into practice 
in the churches in Galatia, a message that effectively sets a screening process at the door of the community of faith. Complete screening process with demands for certain criteria if one has any hopes of truly joining what's happening within. And Paul is alerting that these systems at the door will make the whole building crumble over their heads. So he's saying stop. So here's the issue in Galatia. We talked about it last Sunday. It was one of the first places Paul came to when he started proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And Paul comes to them with a message of profound and unashamed grace. And Paul's story is, I was a Pharisee. I tried to follow the rules to the hardest of it, and I was met by a Christ who met me just as I was. Even though I was indeed so zealous about my, faith, my religious faith, and my religious rules, that I was persecuting others and persecuting the very church of Christ, Christ himself welcomed me. And with that, I learned that this is a dawn of a new era in which all are invited into God through Christ. Grace for us Jews like me, says Paul, and grace for you Gentiles. And that's the thing, because Galatia was not Israel. Galatia was Gentile territory. For those of you who don't know what a Gentile is, it's a church lingo, Bible lingo for non-Jew. Everybody that was not Jew was called a Gentile. So these were major, the majority of the churches in Galatia, were, the majority of people in the churches in Galatia were non-Jews, were Jews as well. But the majority were non-Jews. And he's saying this Jewish rabbi who walked around Israel and Galilee and was crucified by the Romans and rose to life again, he has brought me and I give to you a message of grace saying you are welcome. You can come. You can be a part. And the churches started to blossom, but then another group came from Jerusalem of a different kind of Jews. There were different kinds, right? Paul himself was a Jew, but a different kind that had a different agenda. And their agenda was, if you want to be a follower of Christ, first you have to become a Jew. If you want to follow this Jewish rabbi, first you have to become a Jew and have to become a full-fledged Jew. That means you have to follow all the law, all the commandments, and you have to get circumcised if you're a man. You have to become fully-fledged Jew and then you can follow Christ. And Paul is saying, no, you got it all wrong. And Paul is hitting so hard at this issue and at the people arguing for it that I'm tempted to start by running to their aid and asking Paul to chill down and be reasonable, right? Because it's not hard, after all, to see both reasons and logic for the whole thing. It's not really that. Uh, absurd and irrational if you think about it. One thing that we often don't think about, because of course we live in a very different century, 
is that this thing of Christians being or not Jews had with it a, a legal danger for the Jewish people in the Roman Empire. So the thing is, the Roman Empire took over a huge area, right, as we know. And at this time, something was raising strongly in the Roman Empire, which was called the worship of the emperor. So they were establishing a religious system merged with, a, with the political system that says you have to worship the emperor as he was God. As if he was God. No matter the religion of the areas they had dominated, people had to join in what they called emperor worship. The problem is the Jews were not game. They were kind of like, okay, then you're going to have to kill us. We're not going to do that. And the thing got so complicated that the Jews actually got an exception. And the Romans said, okay, okay, so you get to be the exception. If you're Jew, you don't have to do emperor worship. You just have to pray for the emperor. You don't have to worship the emperor. You don't have to pray to the emperor. You just have to pray for the emperor. And this gave the Jews legal protection. But then along comes the followers of Christ who start saying, this Jewish rabbi is Lord and Lord alone, and we pray to him and we pray to him alone. Are they Jew or are they not Jew? If they're Jew, they put the Jews at risk. How does this work? And this is the scenario in which these people are coming. And there is a chance that they're saying, you guys are messing this up for us. You're putting us in danger with this whole story. So if you want to do this Jewish rabbi thing, become Jews for all sake. Let's just. The other logic is that, well, this was a Jewish Messiah. So if you're learning about Jesus, learning about what he taught, learning about this gospel of grace, and then you go like, oh, but who was this Jesus? Oh, he was a Jewish Messiah, right? Oh, he followed the rules and the Jewish life. <coughs> so I want to do that too. What does that look like? And then you meet these people who are eager and are saying, well, well, here is how you do it. And you go like, oh, yeah, so that's the way. And there's also the earnestness of religious zeal, meaning that it's not like we can't presume <laughs> that these people were making a plan to undo Paul. It's much more likely that they were just very zealous and eager about their faith. And, they, and, and within the setting of Judaism in first century, if somebody wants to become a Jew, they're welcome. But they are the chosen people. So if you want to have a relationship to the God of Israel, you do that by becoming a Jew. And they were so zealous about their faith that they would go to great extents. And Paul, of all people, should know this. For Paul was one that had sat down at the feet of, of the great leaders, of the great teachers, of the great rabbis, of Israel. He is one who was so zealous about his faith that he was actually persecuting the church. But that is precisely why, because Paul knew this so well, that's why he hit it so hard. Because Paul the Pharisee, Paul the one who had lived the life of saying, okay, I, now we're going to go we're going to really go down and do the whole thing, right? Paul the Pharisee knows the game of religious performance. He played it like nobody else. 
He knows the game of religious performance. Paul, who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the great teachers of the time, knows the game of human authority and hierarchy and pedigree. He knows what it's like to come and say, you know who, who I learned, who I studied with? Right? Paul was Harvard Jew. Right? You know who I studied with? He knows what showing that card looks like. But Paul also knows what it is like to find out that that zeal was misguided. Misguided because it was unmerciful, misguided because it was blind, misguided because it was arrogant, misguided because it was excluding, excluding, and misguided because it was violent. And Paul knows what it is like to be met by grace, grace like a blinding light that makes you face your inner demons and reckon with your own humanity with the limitations of your strength of will, of your body, of your, of everything, of this, what it means to be human, and still find yourself embraced in all that brokenness. Find yourself embraced not when you're at the temple at peak performance, but when you're stumbling around on a, wo- on a roadside, half blind after just having fallen from a horse and you don't know what the hell is going on. And in that moment, Christ speaks to him and says, here, I am here. Why are you persecuting me? Right? This divine revelation that isn't saying, good boy, but it is saying, you're trying so hard that you're actually hurting people and the one whom you're saying you want to serve. Paul knows. Paul knows what it is like to be called brother by one he once hated. Paul knows that if that grace is what gives belonging, right? if that moment of acceptance if that process of being embraced is what makes it so that this scared disciple that knew the reputation of Paul still comes to him and calls him brother, then adding anything to it is sabotage and it's perversity. And having known that, Paul will no longer play the games that he has played before. Death-bringing games, he would call them. I think it's reasonable to presume, given the circumstances and the context of the letter, that these teachers from Jerusalem, that they were flouting their religious credentials and tracing their pedigree to the apostles and other Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. They're going, this Paul guy is going around, but has he met Peter? Has he met James? Has he met the apostles in Jerusalem? We're coming from Jerusalem. We know how stuff is supposed to be done, right? And they're doing that at the expense of this Paul who was, you know, spreading the gospel without that stamp, stamp of lineage. And that is likely the backstage to verse 10 where Paul speaks of approval of man versus approval of God. But let, let the teachers have their credentials if that's what they want. 
Paul is concerned with something else. He is concerned with the gospel of life and freedom. And that is why he calls the bearers of this ungospel of religious performance and human credentials accursed. And it's strong language, right? Don't go around cursing stuff. It's, it's strong language, accursed. It's harsh on the ear and it's kind of heavy to address. Those Bible verses we like to jump over. But as elsewhere in this letter, Paul is essentially inviting these false teachers to go all the way down with their own argument. The word that is being used here is the word anathema. Be anathema. And by another gospel than the one I preached, Paul means any gospel that adds requirements to the grace of Christ. Whether these requirements are added by others or even by himself, you notice that in the voice, Paul is saying, even if I myself come and start adding requirements to the grace, may I be anathema. May the bearers of such a message be anathema. And it's a very interesting and telling choice of a word. It's very interesting because there's a, a use of it in Jewish scriptures, which is, of course, the context for this whole discussion. Something anathema was something dedicated to God and set apart for sacrifice and destruction. And the term is used in some quite violent and difficult to deal with situations like Jericho, the whole city to the ground, and it's used for sacrifices. Sacrifice to God, something that is set apart to be destroyed for God. And Paul's point is that anything that intends to substitute or even be added to Christ and his sacrifice is something that sets itself as a sacrifice in the stead of Christ. As if it could substitute or it could complement the Lamb of God. But what Paul has found out and is proclaiming is that only Christ raises from death to life. Paul has met the living Christ. The one who died but lived again. And anything else, Paul says, remains in death. Only Christ rises from death to life, and anything else remains in death, and with it those that embraced it. So he says, anathema, your performance will go with you to death, and it will stay there. And if that's where you're putting your bed on, you'll stay with it. Your religiosity will go with you to death, and it will stay there. And that's, if that's where you're placing your bets, that's where you're staying. If that's where your heart is, that's where your heart is staying. Your human credentials will go with you to death and stay there. And if that's where you're setting your heart, that's where it's going to stay. But that which is hidden in Christ, that which is embraced in Christ, that which is belonging in Christ, and which says Christ is, is what carries me through, that, that lives. That comes back that lives. 
And this is where Paul's anger is, right? If anything becomes a requirement for the fullness of grace, then whatever you are promising is no longer grace. It's no longer Christ, and it no longer gives life. Anathema. And I feel I need to get back to that somewhat inadequate image that I started with. And I left us walking confused into the kitchen, right, with aprons in our hands. And as we go in, we find that the table is served in the kitchen. There's bread and there's wine, there's people eating, and there's people walking around with dirty pans and aprons and pots of food that they're carrying outside the doors to share outside. It's a holy mess. And at the heart of the issue that Paul is dealing with is the understanding, this is what I want to get at, that anything that is added to the gospel is an act of ungospeling, right? But this doesn't mean that communities can't develop practices of faith that emerge and grow from the gospel, from that place of belonging. Not as a screening process that you can go in, but as a transformation from that place of being there. Because this movement of grace, of being welcomed, it brings us here, right? It brings us to a calling to live. If that which is with Christ is that which lives, then we must live. Then we must live. Then our faith might bring, has to bring life. And a faith that is lived from the table from the table, from the space of grace, and then head on into life is very different from a faith that is tiptoeing around booby traps that we ourselves set around the altar. And for the reality of a community of faith with all of its differences, there is something to be said about a faith that finds its diversity and its multiplicity around the table. A faith that comes by this absurd act of grace from God and suddenly finds itself within and looking around and seeing all the faces and shapes and smells that are so different to their own and allowing ourselves to be surprised by that. Allowing the embrace of Christ, of us, be an embrace that is big enough for these people around me and to then say, what does this mean? What does this look like? There's something to be said about a faith that finds this multiplicity around the table, seated by Christ, and then asks what this kingdom life together looks like. What does it look like to move around this kitchen and run out of it with pots of food for the poor? What's my, how, how, do, how do we 
bring these things together into life-giving meals. This is a community that cannot demand that love be earned, but that does declare that love can be lived and that it must be lived. This is a community that cannot demand that grace be earned, but declares that that which was given freely must be given freely. And the thing is, if we try to make spiritual profit on the gospel, we're left selling fakes, counterfeits. But if we live the gospel scandalously like we could never run out of it, if we live the gospel scandalously like we could never run out of it, then we just might find out that we won't. And that's the question for us as a community of faith. That's the question for us as OIC, what does this even look like? We walk into this space, we look around us, and what on earth are these people doing in the same room? There's no screening process at the door. (laughs) And we're looking around and we're saying, what does it look like to live this gospel of grace with these people that Christ seats around us? And what does it look like when this bubbles out into the world, right? In our own lives and in our life as a community of faith. And what does it look like when we find out at this table of grace that that act of grace of God is so absurdly welcoming and transformative? And that leaves us with the questions of what does it mean to live, right? It doesn't let us go with, okay, that's it, I'm in, and that's it. No. Now you're in the kitchen, my friend. And what now? I know my image is limited. (laughs) But I don't think the gospel is. And that's a concrete calling, that's a challenging one. But what does a community of so different people, called by grace, what does that say and do in the world? I hope we'll dare to make the question. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, and may he bring you peace. So go in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world, serve each other, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.